0: I'm Pastor Matthew, one of the pastors here at Brandywine. I'm excited to uh, be able to share with you all today. Would you pray with me as we give this time to God? Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that we can gather here, that we can worship together, that we can worship you through our fellowship, through our singing, through our listening and studying of the word, through our, our tithes and our giving. God, we ask that you would help us Uh, to keep our focus on you during every part of this hour, that you would uh, free us from the distractions of of the world around us, the the things at work or school or home, uh, the lists we want to make or take care of, God. We ask that you'd you'd help protect us from these distractions, that we would be able to give our attention to you and your word today, that you give me your words as we dive uh, into this passage uh, in your word. In Jesus' name. Amen. Are any of you haunted uh, by something? Uh, You know, sometimes we're haunted by things that are serious, sometimes a little less serious. Uh, Almost 20 years ago, uh, when Heather and I lived in Maine, I had to run some errands. And uh, because we're in Maine, this means it was far away, right? There's nothing close. And uh, so I was about 30 or 40 minutes from home. Uh, running these errands and, and doing the stuff. And, and as I was getting ready to come home, a uh, snowstorm blew in that I, I hadn't really expected. I didn't pay attention to the weather report, and it was, it was worse than what I expected. And, and as it was starting to come down and the roads were starting to ice up, I thought, I, I can make it. Uh, I did mostly make it. Uh, I started driving home, and I'm being, you know, really careful, and, 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 and you know, th- this is Maine. People usually know what they're doing when they're driving in the snow, not like here. And <laughs> you just don't get much practice in Delaware. And, and I came to one part of the drive home. It was about the halfway, par- halfway part, and this is what haunts me to this day, is uh, it was a little bit of a hill. It wasn't, it wasn't steep, but it was about, you know, the length of a football field, uh, downward slope. And, and as I came over the top and started to go so slow, I was going so slowly down this hill, just as I started to go down it, uh, the guy at the bottom of the hill spun out, lost control, and crashed into the guardrail, right? Uh, just and the, and the guardrail was right on the road, and I thought, wow, that stinks for him, and and I started putting on my brakes. I'm like, well, I, get, you know, I got a football length uh, to get to him, but I will stop and, and I push on the brakes and nothing happens. I just keep sliding. And, I, you know, I was like, oh, so now I'm like pumping the brakes, nothing, doing the emergency brake, nothing. I'm trying to turn. Like, you know, surely I can at least miss him. And the car wouldn't turn. It just, like, it didn't matter what way the wheels were pointed. We were just sliding. It was a slow motion, just worst like, minute or two of my, it felt like an eternity, just slowly gliding down this hill until I crashed into the car. Nobody got hurt. It was a slow motion accident. But that feeling of powerlessness... <laughs> As my car, as I'm sliding down and I know what's going to happen and it doesn't no matter what I do, nothing's going to stop it. Every time I'm driving now in the snow, that feeling of power, like it just comes back and haunts me. And I, I'm so careful. I'm so cautious. It drives Heather crazy. She's like, just let me drive. And I'm like, absolutely not. <laughs> uh, not with that attitude. This... Uh, Right? And, and, and she's a good driver. But, but it still haunts me. I just, I get so tense when it snows. Because that comes back to me. Are any of you uh, haunted by a scripture passage? Is that a weird question to ask in church? Uh, I'll tell you what, there, there are some doozies in the Bible, right? Uh, but the one that filled me with guilt and anxiety for a whole lot of years is in James 4.17. It says, "Uh, remember, it's sin to know what you ought to do and then not do it. I I did not care for that one. Uh, I went to a boarding school for missionary kids when I was a teenager. My family, we lived in South America. And uh, it was very legalistic, kind of controlling uh, boarding school is super strict. And the teachers there like weaponize this verse. The staff at this boarding school weaponize this verse. Uh, they, you know, they'd be like, hey, if you know what to do and you don't do it, it's sin. Right? If you see some dirty dishes and you don't wash them, it's <laughs> sin. If you see some trash on the ground and you don't pick it up, sin. If you see some way you could help me out and you don't do it, Sin. never flipped the other way. It wasn't like if they ever saw some way that they could help me out, but whatever. Uh, It was just like all the time being this drum. And it used to, like, it, it stressed me out. Because it was like it didn't matter how much I tried. For sure there was probably some good stuff I should have done that I didn't do. So I was just sinning all over the place. Right? And it would give me anxiety and frustration and just, like, hopelessness. Uh, this feeling of powerlessness to like I cannot live up to this verse. i don't think this is the con- this is what James was going for with this warning that the anxi- anxiety I was feeling was not his intended goal over just everything the, the context of this verse which starts in James 4.13, is critical to understanding what he's actually talking about. And in James 4.13, James writes, look here. Now, let's pause there for just a moment. Don't worry. We won't pause every two words. But these two are important because the tone here is is important, right? Because, like, there's a lot of different ways we can say, look here. You, You could say, hey, look here. Uh, at this delightful thing, or you could do what James is doing and be like, hey, look here, right? There's a tone of correction in the original Greek. Actually, there's a a bit of a tone of condemnation. He is calling some people out, right? This is not a fun look here, but he's saying, hey, I need your eyes and ears on me right now. And uh, he goes, look here, you who say, Today or tomorrow, we're going to go to a certain town and we'll stay there a year. We'll do business there and make a profit. How do you know what your life will be like tomorrow? Your life is like the morning fog. It's here a little while, then it's gone. What you ought to say is if the Lord wants us to, we will live and do this or that. Otherwise, you are boasting about your own pretentious plans and all such boasting is evil. Right, and, and James is not, this, is, this specific part of the passage is written to merchants. In fact, the commentators believe these were Christians in the church that were merchants. And he's not calling them out because they were making money. He's calling them out because they were putting all their plans and faith in their, in their money and their ability to do what they want. That, that God was an afterthought. Their plans for the future their security, all that was tied up in their plans, not God's plans. And then, in the context of that, he gets to the crescendo, which is calling out the rich in the next chapter. In James four seventeen, he continues his thought. He says, remember, it is sin to know what you ought to do and then not do it. Look here, you rich people. Supplies for a moment again. Uh, I want to point something out. Uh, When James wrote this, this was a letter, right? He was writing a letter to these Christians uh, to read in their church and to to receive some teaching from him. It was centuries later that someone added chapter numbers and verse numbers. Uh, They're really a tool for us to navigate the Bible easier so that we can say, hey, turn to such and such, and we can get there quickly. We can identify passages and find where we're at. But the temptation... Or the mistake that we can sometimes make is is when we see a chapter break is to assume this is a break of thought. Now he's moving on to something else. This was one letter that he was writing. And all of the different comments, sometimes a chapter break does mark a clear break in topics. But all of the commentaries I read on this said that the verses from 4.13 to 5.6 were one thought that James was trying to communicate. That it was one point that he was building in strength in. And so as he's continuing, what he started in chapter 4 was the foundation for what was going to be his real point. In 5.1, he says, look here, you rich people. Weep and groan with anguish because of all the terrible troubles ahead of you. Your wealth is rotting away, and your fine clothes are moth-eaten rags. Your gold and silver are corroded. The very wealth you were counting on will eat away your flesh like fire. This corroded treasure you have hoarded will testify against you on the day of judgment. For listen, hear the cries of the field workers whom you have cheated of their pay. The cries of those who harvest your fields have reached the ears of the Lord of heaven's armies. You have spent your years on earth in luxury, satisfying your every desire. You have fattened yourselves for the day of slaughter. You have condemned and killed innocent people who do not resist you. Uh, according to the Old Testament, taking the wealthy taking advantage of the poor was a crime which makes sense, right? It should be criminal to take advantage of people. In fact, though, uh, simply failing to help the poor was a crime in Old Testament law that that these Jewish people had grown up with for centuries and known. Uh, Failing to help the poor was almost kind of a sin of omission, right? A, A sin committed by not doing something you should do. In other words, when James is saying it's a sin to know what you ought to do and then not do it, this is exactly what he's referring to. That he's saying, "Look here, you rich people! You know what to do with your money, and you're not doing it. That's a sin." Each of these different uh, scholars made the same observation about the target of James's words here. That 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 the merchants were Christians in the church, but now that he's transitioned to the wealthy, uh, these rich were not Christians, right? Because he's saying, hey, they're going to burn. It, to put it bluntly, he kind of says that, right? That, that's, not, that's not what Christians happen in, in judgment. Now, as a Christian, we can feel kind of ashamed and uncomfortable when we face God someday to answer uh, how we lived or did not live our life for him and his kingdom, but we're not going to burn, right? We're, we're, we're still granted salvation. But, but these uh, were the wealthy unbelievers. And while the letter was written to Christians, this portion of it was calling out the sin of the rich who were oppressing these early uh, poor Christians uh, that James was writing to. James isn't railing against these unsaved rich because they were rich. Right? The sin was not in having wealth. The sin was in the misuse of their wealth. And he identifies three ways that they misuse their wealth in this passage we just read. Let's take a closer look. In 5, 2, and 3, he writes, Your wealth is rotting away. Your fine clothes are moth-eaten rags. Your gold and silver are corroded. The very wealth you are counting on will eat away your flesh like fire. This corroded treasure you have hoarded will testify against you on the day of judgment. Their first misuse was that they hoarded wealth. They hoarded wealth. It was such a massive waste. Right? As James is looking, he's going, the clothes are rotting away before they can even be used. And it's thought that they were literally rotting in their homes, it's a a modern-day equivalent would be, hey, you have so many clothes. There are clothes in your closet with the tags still on them because you just don't have time to get to them. Did that get a little uncomfortable? Like, anybody? He's going, you have so much, it's just wrong. You have so much money, so much wealth, that it's corroding from lack of use. Right? He's going, look, like, you have have so much money just sitting there. Like, you're never even going to be able to use it. This is beyond taking care of yourself and your family. You're wasting resources. Over and over, the scriptures reveals God's heart for those in need, the hungry, the poor, those without a voice. And here are resources that could help them being hoarded rather than being put to use for God's kingdom. He continues with the next way they were misusing Uh, their money. He says, For listen, hear the cries of the field workers whom you have cheated of their pay. The cries of those who harvest your fields have reached the ears of the Lord of Heaven's armies. They cheated the poor. In desperation, the poor would work for these wealthy landowners. It was a very small minority of the population that owned land. Right? And so they would work for the wealthy landowners, hoping... To be paid at the end of the day uh, for their hard day's labor. And back then, a day's labor was 12 hours. It was a long day of backbreaking work in the fields or in the, the mills or wherever it was. And so at the end of the day, they would hope to be paid, yet frequently they were denied wages. This, this was a problem that had been going on for centuries where these wealthy landowners, clearly they had the resources, would still be like, hey, I can't pay you yet, uh, you know, until we sell at harvest time. I can't pay you yet because of this. I'm not entirely happy with what you did. That whatever the excuse was, they just wouldn't pay them. And they wouldn't give them their lost wages, right? And this was a problem that had been going on for centuries. 1,500 years before. Moses wrote in Deuteronomy, when he was writing down the law, uh, one of the laws was in Deuteronomy 24, 14, and 15, never, Take advantage of poor and destitute laborers. Whether they are fellow Israelites or foreigners living in your towns, you must pay them their wages each day before sunset because they're poor and are counting on it. If you don't, they might cry out to the Lord against you, and it would be counted against you as sin. See, it's... Why, I lost my place in my notes for a second there. Why would these poor keep going back to them to work if this is, if this is how they treated their employees? Do you wonder that? Because I wonder that too at times. I would read this and go, so why would you go back? Hey, well, don't we have sayings? I Fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. It was a different world thousands of years ago, right? There was no government programs to help those that were out of work or that needed income or needed something to supplement their income so that they could have a livable wage. There, there were no ways to get help. And so if you were a, a poor person, which was something like 90% of the population, your only choice was to work for these wealthy people and hope that you got one of the ones that might be a little more honest, right? That they would slave away all day and hope that they might get paid, and even though they weren't, they would have to keep doing it because they were trapped in a system where there were no other options. And then they would end up going hungry when they weren't paid, when they were cheated of their wages. The third thing, the third misuse that James identifies is in verse 5 and 6. He says, You have spent your years on earth in luxury, satisfying your every desire. You have fattened yourselves for the day of slaughter. You have condemned and killed innocent people who do not resist you. And you might think the third misuse is that they're killing people. The third misuse was that they lived in luxury. And the death of innocence was the result of their desire to live. In luxury, it's easy to focus on the killing of innocent people, but the sin was their luxury—that they lived self-indulgently, and their self-indulgent lifestyles killed the innocent. Death was the result of their luxury. And how offensive is this to God? How how seriously does God take this result, this destruction uh, of His? children, people created in his image. We often think of Sodom and Gomorrah as an example of God's judgment on someone who's uh, been incredibly sinful, who's done uh, as a city that has done such horrible wrongs. And, and oftentimes, I think we make the wrong assumptions about what the reasons were that God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. The prophet Ezekiel reveals the real reason God destroyed them in a message from the Lord that he delivered to Jerusalem. And I love the way the message translation brings a certain life to this passage where Ezekiel passes this message on from God to the people of Israel, uh, to the people of Jerusalem, about why Sodom was actually destroyed. He says, the sin of your sister Sodom was this. She lived with her daughters in the lap of luxury. Proud, gluttonous, lazy. They ignored the oppressed and the poor. They put on airs and lived obscene lives. And you know what happened? I did away with them. They lived in luxury. They lived obscene lives. That was the sin of Sodom that resulted in its destruction. It's exactly what James is talking about in this passage with the rich that he was addressing in his letter. Their killing of the innocent was more subtle than you may think. We read condemned and killed innocent people and picture violent murder. Well, I should say that's what I picture when I read that. But commentators give a different explanation. That James is describing the very real outcome of the wealthy's hoarding of their wealth and resources and cheating of the poor. People died of starvation of illness because they couldn't afford medical help, from the vulnerability that comes with poverty resulting in their death. We see that today, right? That, that you can look and see that the world's poor have shorter lifespans, literally, because of the limits of living in poverty. The wealthy may not have plunged a knife into them, but they created and facilitated the circumstances that led to their death, to the death of innocence. Which brings us back to James's warning in 4.17. Remember, it is sin to know what you ought to do and then not do it. They misused their wealth, and people died for it. Sometimes because of something they did directly, Sometimes because they knew what they should do and didn't do it. But if James was talking about people who were not believers, what does that have to do with us today? Right? Does that give us an out? Sam Albury uh, points out in his commentary, it's one of the recommended uh, books on the pastor's recommended books out there uh, on James. Sam Alberry points out in his commentary two reasons James writes this to believers. Two reasons that apply directly to us as well. The first is this that we would know what God thinks about this kind of misuse of wealth. Right? That, That God looks at the world and sees humanity as his children, created in his. Image, with immense and incredible value, right? That God desires none of his children to go through this, like none of us as parents would want to see our child suffer, to be cheated by someone else, to be robbed of resources that, that they should have, that they need to live their life, right? That, that we as imperfect people would want more than that for our children in the same way God on so much more of a scale has designed and created this world for humanity to be treating itself in a better, different way. To see in each other the divine image of God that he has created us in. That's the first reason why we need to know about this misuse of wealth. Secondly, that as we look at these sinful behaviors, hoarding wealth, cheating the poor, living in luxury, that we would check ourselves against this list, right? That are we living out these things that James was uh, calling out against? And the challenge, I think, is this word rich, isn't it? Right? That, that, that our American culture drives us to accumulate, to build our net worth, to have expectations about what we're entitled to, that we read the headlines on what people are valued at. And the thing is, when we look around, it's very easy to say, well, I'm not rich because I don't have what they have, right? That we're, we're comparing ourselves to people around us. And in North Wilmington, there's plenty of wealthier people to compare ourselves to and go, well, pff, I'm not, I'm not rich, Right, like I, it ought, to be honest, like I could be making a little bit more if I could just make this much money. Then, I could be, you know, at the place where where I feel like I should be at, my family should be at. That that we hear that word rich, and we go, I'm not rich. So and so, is the one who's rich, who's wealthy. Uh, a couple months ago, I read a book, uh, Christ Among the Classes: The Rich, the Poor, and the Mission of the Church by author, pastor, missionary, Al Tizon, And uh, he does something really interesting in his book. He avoids using the word rich. As he talks about this topic, uh, he, he uses two labels. He talks about the world's poor and the world's non-poor. And it made me a little more uncomfortable. Right? That that why does he avoid the label rich? Partially because we're so good at giving that label to others, but struggle to see it as appropriate for ourselves. Even though the United States, we we only have 4.23% of the world's population, but we have 31% of the world's wealth. We are far and away the wealthiest nation in the world. Nobody else is close to where we at when it comes to owning uh, the world's wealth, 31%. And it's by design. Uh, George Kennan, a U.S. foreign policy planner, said in 1948, quote, we have about 50% of the world's wealth, but only 6.3% of its population. Our real task in the coming period, is to devise a pattern of relationships which will permit us to maintain this position of disparity. Right? That it is designed, it is ingrained in our culture to maintain the position of disparity. Without us even realizing it. I loved what Allison shared. Right? About being in this other country and having kind of these moments of going, things that I viewed as necessities aren't really necessities, are they? That our culture has shaped that companies have spent billions of dollars coaching us and training us to think about what we need, what we're entitled to, how we should spend our money, the ways that we should accumulate, the ways that things become outdated, and how much more we need to have. Al uh, Tazone, right, you know, he talks about how uh, our culture maintains disparity we look up to the wealthy. We vilify the poor, right? We tell ourselves they just don't work hard enough. They're lazy, uh, even though many who are low income work far harder than the non-poor would ever want to admit to or acknowledge. Altazone writes, "Jesus warned the rich. We tend to court them. Jesus was a friend of the poor. We tend." To avoid them, Jesus taught that we cannot love God and money. We agree in principle, but in practice, we attempt to prove him wrong. Right? That that we are the wealthy minority of the world. And I don't know about you, but I start to get really uh, uncomfortable when I consider the three sins of the rich God was so angry with uh, in James 5, hoarding wealth, cheating the poor, living in luxury. Right Because we as a nation hoard wealth, 31 percent of it. We know that our devices and foreign-made toys uh, and clothing are cheaper because of the horrible conditions and pay that people receive in other parts of the world. But we turn a blind eye to it because it gives us cheaper prices which allows us to accumulate more. James writes of the rich killing the innocent. I've lived in South American nations where desperately hardworking people saw family members die because they didn't have the 50 cents to take the bus to the city where they could get free medical care. Right? And these are the people raising the produce that we consume from our supermarkets in the U.S. That there's a disparity and how we pay for and acquire things. When we view what we find ourselves thinking of as average lives, when we defend ourselves because we can see others around us with more, that that to the rest of the world, we are living in luxury. Luxurious lives to the poor, even in our own backyard. James says, Remember, it is sin to know what you ought to do and then not do it. This is the context of James' warning. How do we handle our wealth? Right? The sin is not in being rich. It's in misusing the wealth. When I was younger, this verse haunted me for the wrong reasons. Today, it haunts me more knowing the context and the lives that it's so easy to live here. I, I wonder if James came to us today, what kind of letter he would write us as the American church uh, in, in America? What would he write to us? I think if we were to flip the wording to say, What do we do with this then? what he would say is, Do what you know to do. Right? That the opposite of cheating the poor is seeing the image of God in them. When we purchase goods that have been produced by underpaid, abused workers, we aren't just cheating them. We're denying the image of God in them. We're denying their humanity, right, that that they're worth. We, We need to take the time to know where the things we purchase are coming from, how they were obtained. We're called to use our voice and our influence for others to advocate for livable wages, to advocate for opportunities for those in need. I love websites like Fair Trade Certified that do the research to see where are, what are the conditions that these goods are coming from, what companies are looking out for their employees and which companies are taking advantage of people. Right, that even though we can't see it, how we handle our wealth, how we purchase, can be cheating and abusing others. The opposite of hoarding wealth and living in luxury, I believe, is living with contentment. That there's a difference between having security for today and the future and having more than you need or could use. Right? That that our culture blinds us to how much we actually have. It fills us with discontentment. That every commercial that bombards us is driving us to be unsatisfied with what we have, and you'll feel content if you just get this much more. And God is calling us to push back on that view, right? To learn to be content with where we are, to learn what true necessities are versus what our culture tells us we need, that God in his word reveals over and over that he blesses some with more, not so that they can accumulate and hoard it, but that they can then help others and bless others with that excess, right? That God has called us to do what we know we ought to do with what he has blessed us with. And I think if you're wondering where do I even start, right? Where do I begin to share my resources, where do I begin to share the wealth that God has given me, whether I think of it as wealth or not, uh, our church has partnered with a number of organizations in our area that help the poor, the homeless, those that are struggling, those that are needing help with addictions or with jobs or with income, whatever it is, we can help point you in directions to give both financially and with your time and service. To do just that for God. That as we take this challenge of doing what we ought to do, I love uh, there's a few verses in Matthew chapter 25 that I wanna close with. An example of Jesus explaining what it looks like to do what we ought to do. Jesus said, Then these righteous ones will reply, Lord, when did we ever see you hungry? and feed you, or thirsty, and give you something to drink, or a stranger, and show you hospitality, or naked, and give you clothing. When did we ever see you sick, or in prison, and visit you? And the king will say, I tell you the truth, when you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers and sisters, you were doing it for me. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this letter from James, and and the words and the, the things that we've been learning from it over these weeks. God, we ask that you would help us to avoid the temptations of these wealthy in James. That you would, that you would give us the courage and the wisdom to not cheat the poor. To not live luxuriously. To, to not... Uh, misuse the wealth that you have given us. God, we ask that you would open our eyes to ways that we can follow your will and live with contentment in the lives that you have called us to and the jobs that you have called us to, the homes and communities that you have placed us. God, we ask that you would use us in this area to build your kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen.